I'm Claire Liu, and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team, a software tool that helps managers avoid becoming a bad leader. And I've got someone incredible on the heartbeat today who has spent most of his working life avoiding becoming a bad leader, written a book most recently about it too. So I'm so pleased to have on the show Will Larson, who is the head of foundation engineering at Stripe, a payments platform that we're happy customers of, that so, so many people all over the world are happy customers of. And Will most recently, though, wrote this incredible book, which you see all my little, you know, index cards here. It's really that good. Uh, it's called An Elegant Puzzle, uh, Systems of Engineering Management, and actually Stripe published it. It's a beautiful book. And I could not wait to talk to Will after reading it. And I think I also saw you speak. We both spoke at the same conference here in San Francisco, I want to say, earlier this year as well. And I was, I was impressed from your talk. So, so excited to ask you this one question, Will, in particular. Like, like I said, many, many questions I have to ask you, but this one in particular. So, all right, you ready? Yeah, no, let's let's do it. Super, super excited to, to answer the question to the best of my ability. <laughs> you bet. So the question that I'd love to ask you and that I've been asking all leaders that I've admired is, what's one thing you wish you would have learned earlier as a leader? No, I, I love this question. So there, there, there's obviously a lot of things that I wish I had learned earlier in, in my kind of leadership experience. I think the probably could kind of go endlessly long on this. So the the first thing I, I really think about a lot is that I think early on in my career, I thought every decision was final and like that things were permanent. Huh. So you'd be having a, a technology discussion about whether you use like one queuing system or another, or you'd be talking about how to like design, like the, get the product that you're trying to take to market, or you're talking about how to do like a small org change and it creates this kind of zero sumness. I, I don't know. Um, have you read Finite and Infinite Games? You know what's so funny? I have it literally. Like, I, I see it on on the bookshelf over there, and, and I've heard a lot about it, and I've talked a lot about the concepts with people, but I have not actually read the book. Well, the title gives you like eighty percent, and then you can like <laughs> accurately guess the remaining twenty percent, like sure. with high accuracy, right? Um, but but I think that idea is like so powerful. Where I think I used to think that every decision and every like choice was zero sum, and I was trying to be right. Yeah. And then I think this idea where actually you're just trying to stay in the game together, <laughs> um, and not not lose, but like have everyone keep playing together. Yes. Was so powerful, and it took me so long to understand that was where when I wasn't working well with peers, when I wasn't making good decisions, because I thought it was this one-off decision, but there are really no one-offs. Yeah. In, in your career. I love that sentiment. It's actually I don't think actually anyone. To, I mean, I've interviewed like I want to say you know over fifty. CEOs, founders, managers, executives over the past almost two years now. I don't think anyone has said that answer before, which is actually pretty rare. Usually they sort of overlap or touch each other, but um, it's pretty singular. And I think the reason why you know I was smiling when you were saying that is because I'm thinking about all the unintended consequences that come from assuming that it has to be perfect or you have to get it right or there's sort of you know an, an answer key in the back of the book somewhere on how to successfully have this team perform well and have everyone working well together. For you, Will, 
when did you realize this? I mean, you've had, you know, sort of a long storied career, both at DIG and at Uber and engineering leadership roles. Was it then? Was it at Stripe? Was it previous to that? I've been realizing this over and over and kind of increasingly yeah. like clear ways. I think one of the gifts of um, starting to lead in larger roles is that people copy you. <laughs> and so sometimes it's hard to like see your own behavior. But yeah. you see people in your org all start behaving in a certain way. And you're kind of like, why is everyone doing this? And slowly you walk it back and it's, and you realize it's because you're doing it. Uh, and they're actually like modeling this behavior that you're maybe not like as aware of as, as you thought you were. Right. One of the things I've learned about myself, I think, to my pleasure and, and displeasure is that I'm like a fairly rigid person in a lot of ways. Okay. And I've been seeing that like play out in my organization. And I'm like, wow, like why is my org so rigid? And it's like, it's because I'm rigid. Hmm. And so that, I think, has become increasingly clear to me as I got into work with, like, larger teams mm -hmm. that you can see it much more easily. And so I think really it started to be clearer to me at, at Uber, kind of this rigidity and the consequences of it and kind of the belief behind the rigidity that these were, like, critical, essential, like, bad things would happen if I didn't get this thing right every single time. Yeah. And then I, at Stripe, I got to see the, the same lesson again and, and started to internalize it, I think, a little bit more this time. Totally. I mean, you talk about this concept of modeling, actually. Uh, there's a wonderful section of your book where you sort of outline approaches. And this is actually one of the things I was excited to talk to you about. Uh, you seem to have done a lot of reflection around your own personal framework for how you think about leadership, which I think is fascinating. I mean, from a purely sort of academic perspective, because, you know, you look at sort of the academic field of, of leadership and management, and my God, there's like a hundred frameworks, right? And the, mm -hmm. uh, the reason why actually that's helpful is because sort of the best leaders, what they do is they create the best framework, which is accumulation of a few for themselves. So I just thought it was so mature and sophisticated in your thinking of sort of formulating your own instead of sort of like stepping on these sort of other broad frameworks. For example, like I think a really popular one is sort of like authentic leadership or a lot of people lean into situational leadership and um, or trait-based leadership, et cetera. But the one that you described, it was around, I believe, modeling, documenting, and sharing. I just, yeah, I'll, I'll sort of leave it there. I, I'm curious to hear how you got to this and also for you to explain to, to our audience what this framework is and how it's useful to you. A couple of lead-ins there. I think one of the interesting things I think about managing in Silicon Valley when you start out in a smaller startup mm -hmm. is that often the the role modeling is there's just like not an experienced manager to model after. Hmm. And so to your point, you can like read all these books and these books are, I think, very helpful. There's lots of great books out there that I've learned a ton from, but they, they don't necessarily have like a roadmap you can actually implement. It's like, right. here, here's how this works at this like multinational corporation. But like, this is a five person team running out of money. Like, how, totally. do, I, like, oh. how do I do this? Right? Yeah, I mean, I liken it will often to you don't learn how to ride a bike by reading a book. Right? Yep. It's like, you can read lots of books about it. You can become extremely knowledgeable about the parts and inclines and gears and speed, but it's a totally another thing to, to get on it and to do it yourself. And it, it's it's totally different. So I think one of the cool things that happens, though, is that you actually have this opportunity to kind of like reverse engineer what management is. Hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times this goes poorly. So I don't think this is like the, the, the best way we could be training new managers is just kind of throwing the throwing the child into the, the, the lake and asking them to like start swimming, right? Yeah. Like sometimes they start swimming, but like I imagine like the success rate is like pretty low on that particular one. But yes, 
it does give you a chance if you take it to sort of think about what management is to you and like what resonates and works with you the best way. Mm-hmm. And I think for, for me, authenticity is, I think, sort of out of necessity, I don't have much of a like ability to hide my feelings, getting better at that. But I think like authenticity is like a core value for me. And so I had to figure out what are different styles for leadership that allow me to be like kind of true to like myself, but that also work because <laughs> there's lots of styles that are like authentic, but don't work. <laughs> uh, and so being authentic to yourself is not like the most like companies don't hire you to be like your authentic self necessarily. They like hire you to like accomplish something. And they'd love it if you could do that in a way where you are authentic, but it's not like goal one of the business is not like Will is authentic self today or something like no one, no one like really cares if I'm like authentic to myself on any given day. So how do you find like a a style that actually works for you and that you can be like kind of fully bought into and engaged with Mm -hmm. and works for the people around you? And so one of the styles I found was this kind of model document share, which is this idea that um, a lot of times you're trying to make influence, but you don't actually have authority. And I think there sometimes you can be like defeatist about this where it's like, I can't do anything. I don't have authority. Yes. But I, I basically never found you have like no one actually has much as much authority as you think they have. <laughs> yes. Where you're like, oh, the CEO has all the authority or so and so has all the authority. But everyone's like living in these like tight set of constraints or like maybe you have all this like power, like air quotes. But the only legal moves you can make from like all these constraints, you still only have like two choices where you have like infinite authority, but can only deploy it in like one or two like very simple ways. And so for me, model document share is like, what if we thought about this without authority? What if we believe that people are going to do rational things and going to do the best thing they can? And if you show something that that works, um, for example, um, how you do planning or, for example, how you do project selection to make sure that not just the loudest folks get access to the best projects, but there's actually kind of a a justice in how projects get assigned across the full set of people who are interested, then you model it and you actually have to like show up, right? Modeling is showing up, which is like hard when you're really busy to like remember to show up, right? Then you document it clearly so other people can find that. And then you like give them access to that document and kind of tell them about your experience. And I found I've been able to do much more through this process because it uh, when you work from authority or from central org, you have to like do everything so carefully. You have to like build alignment. You have to roll it out carefully. But if you have these like experiments, hey, we did this experiment. Um, if you want to copy it, feel free. It takes all the overhead of alignment out of it because it's not risky. It's not forced. It's not mandatory. And then you can see adoption. And we've had a lot of success where then it did get adopted. And then we can just say, like, everyone's already doing this. Is this just what we do? And everyone's like, yeah, this is just what we do. But never having to do like the rigid kind of build consensus component that can take up a lot of time. Absolutely. Well, I think it's brilliant and I can see it being so effective. And I mean, so many of the clients that we've worked with have sort of deployed this without even calling it, right? Model uh, document share, just in the sense that, you know, it's so true for teams and just in human nature that people can't believe that something is true and works unless they actually see that it's true and it works. And you can talk all day and you can sort of sit, like you said, from your positional authority or whatever sort of title you've got under your, your name on your business card and, and, and postulate, oh, this, you know, I think we should do this or I know this is the sort of the best way to go. And to prove it out though is, is a whole nother thing. So here's the, here's where obviously it gets tricky, right? It's always in the, the execution of, of models like this, right? Because it, it, here, it assumes a few things. One, that the person is able to model things correctly. 
Have you, as a manager of managers, encountered moments where you're like, okay, like you said, like I saw my team become more rigid because I was being too rigid, right? How does how does one self correct for that, especially for yourself as you know a leader of such a large organization that's changing rapidly? There are, I think there are things where you are intellectually aware of something that you're not good at or should be doing, but kind of like emotionally or for whatever reason, you just like can't do it. Yes. For me, something in this category is like team building offsites Hmm. where I I know, I know I need to do it. I've gotten feedback. I'm not doing it enough. It's the feedback's correct. And I like appreciate that it's correct, but I still just can't seem to translate it into actual like action. And there's some sort of like consistent thing there where they, I think you just some people end up with like blocks on certain activities where they just like can't seem to do it. And, and this one's funny in the sense that this is like seemingly like super doable thing that like the vast majority of managers successfully do and that I just like com- consistently bungle in this kind of bizarre way. Right. Um, so I, I think there's definitely things where you know what to do and don't do it. And actually, this is as a side note, like why it's so hard to interview really senior managers because they know what to tell you, but they just like don't necessarily do it. Yes, that is so astute. If you're self-aware, like often you can like pair with someone who like compliments you, right? And I think um, you still have to be careful about um, not just offloading the work you don't like to someone else. But there are people who like work you don't like, and vice versa, right? Where you can actually like be compliments, and I think sometimes you can get kind of fortunate with that. But but ultimately, to lead is to model good behavior, and if you aren't willing or able to, then then you are not leading well in that dimension. And then you have like a portfolio of things that you have to be good at. And I think every leader I've worked with has some gap. One, one of my gaps is definitely like team building offsites. <laughs> there, are, there are others, but it's not just about being good at everything. Although you do have to try to get reasonable at everything. You can't be terribly deficient at anything, I think, and be a sufficiently a good leader at scale. Totally. Well, I, well, I think the the thing that you also sort of illustrate in your eh, sort of in your own answer is you exhibit an awareness of the gap, right? So I think the problem becomes when the modeling is incorrect, but the person doesn't know that they're actually incorrecting, you know, incorrectly modeling behavior that is negative for the organization. And you know, sort of what you have sort of beautifully showed is like, yes, you know, you sort of have to be reasonable at at everything. There are things that you're not going to be always great at, but the key is to to be able to see that clearly, understand what you're modeling well, what you're not, pairing with people who do sort of lift up the, you know, the places where, where you're not as strong in, I think. Um, and then this is the point that I, I really particularly resonated with that you said is that essentially what leadership is, though, is effective modeling at the end of the day. Like, I think a lot of times our conception of leadership, for better or for worse, probably for worse, you know, just through our society has been rather a leader more of, of words, of sort of big, bold action, of dramatic flair and charisma. Yet it's, to your point, sort of the day in, the day out, the small, small words of encouragement, the small gestures, small things that people do that they model that this is more than anything. I think there are different models of leadership. I think the one you described is one that I personally aspire to, which is I was talking to someone earlier in the day. And I think Hmm. there's this idea that leadership is like, as you described it there, like having the most dramatic vision, being the the most aggressive or the the most competitive. But, But I actually think like most of the great leaders I've worked with are just extraordinarily consistent at the fundamentals. 
Uh, I mean, there's actually a lot of good leadership is just like being an extraordinarily good listener, an extraordinarily kind person, extraordinarily empathetic, extraordinarily consistent yes. in how you do process and how you make decisions. And that it's not necessarily, to, to your point, like very flashy. It's just like the consistency when you're when you're modeling to like hundreds or thousands of people, the consistency just becomes like even if you do it wrong one out of a hundred times, that is actually like too, too often at some level. Hmm. I, yeah, I love that point. I, I find that to be so true. And I mean, so many, so many of the leaders that, that we've worked with. Thank you for, for sharing that. Okay. Here's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Well, like literally I have like hundreds of questions. So I'm like in my head picking and choosing which ones am I going to ask? Cause the book was so, so wonderful. I was reading a page where you talked about killing your heroes. Tell me about this. What do you mean? Yeah, that's that's interesting. So I wrote the majority of the book over a six-month period, but a few of the pieces are things I wrote um, 10 years ago. Oh, wow. And that, that, actually, that is actually, I think, the oldest piece in there. Oh, and no that is like That is like about 10 years old. Um, so where was I when I wrote that? So I was a few companies ago, and we had a senior technical leader um, who was kind of single-handedly trying to prop the company up. And like taking it on their back, doing all the work, making all the decisions, dealing with every on-call problem, mm, yeah. you know, every design, they were at the forefront and they were, you know, working themselves into the grave and they, they meant so well, and, but they were also kind of breaking the company um, while trying to save it. And so I think they're so often you kind of lionize that person, like this is yes. this person who's saving it. But I think the challenge is it's both true that this is a wonderful person trying very hard to do the right thing, and they're doing it in such a way that they're harming the business very meaningfully. And if you don't stop them, the business will like fail to grow at a minimum and maybe like fail overall. And I think that to me is the core of this idea. Like, how do hmm. you have empathy for someone who is? trying but like sabotaging themselves and others without without being angry at them like they're trying it's not that they're bad it's just that they're um, mis implementing like uh, the approach just doesn't work absolutely do you think the ceo at the time saw this as an issue or saw this person as a hero and was like, you know, God, thank God we hired this person because oh, then I would, you know, like maybe I'd have to have, you know, have hired three people. Like, I think like your perspective is spot on, but I also feel like you have that clarity by virtue of your position in some way. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, or I'm curious to hear that, like push back on me if you think that I'm off yeah. there. I'm curious what you think. It's uh, we, we found the 10x engineer and if the the 1x engineers just got out of their way, uh, it would all be fine. Right. Um, so there's like these myths of, of productivity. Yep. I think as you're around in tech or the valley long enough, you start to see the public myth of like kind of different projects and individuals. And then you talk to people involved and you realize like the public myth and the actual like experience like, don't relate where it would be like, oh, this person who's perceived publicly to have led this project was never involved, et cetera, right? So I, I think there is like the perception gap on these things is massive. Yeah. And it's kind of endemic um, how big the perception gaps often often are and um, how people's contributions are yet erased in kind of complicated ways. In this case, I, I don't think there was a whole lot of awareness that this was a problem. I think another thing I learned slowly in my career is that 
if you bring emotion to a lot of disagreements, then people characterize performance problems as relationship problems. And so this is a place where I brought too much emotion into it. And it became I had a bad relationship with the person versus there was like an actual issue because it's much easier to be like, you know, Claire has a relationship problem with so-and-so than to like actually deal with the fact that there's something you as a leader need to like address. Right. Absolutely. Well, this leads sort of or segues really nicely to another concept that you talk about that that also really hit home for me, which is doing the hard things first, but also stop doing it harder. So like kind of seemingly contradictory ideas that might, you know, one might say are our intention, but I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about about both. So um, yeah, just this this idea of, I mean, whichever one you want to sort of dive into first, but yeah, like, you know, stop doing it harder yet. Yeah. Curious when you, when you were writing that, and, and again, like I love hearing this context of sort of when you were in your career too, and, and thinking some of these things through. Doing the hard thing first, I think that is something I learned doing these larger migrations, and I think um, like technical migrations, like how do we move from this um, kind of server-based infrastructure to this container-based infrastructure, sure. or um, how to from manual provisioning to kind of um, fully like hands-free uh, automated provisioning or something like that, and so. For the migration article and kind of doing the hardest thing first, that the biggest migration I've ever done was at Uber, um, and we were trying to move. Um, we, we had this kind of untenable situation where we were getting two or three people a day asking to spin up a service, and we were only able to spin up like um, two or three a week. And so each day we came in, we were like further behind, and yes. we were working hard. And you know, you often talk about this idea of being like further behind each day, but it's it's rarely like trackable in a way where it's like obviously true. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the cool thing is we um, we could actually show we were further behind each day. And, and that's a cool opportunity because when you're when you're kind of bankrupt in this specific way, it, you, you have permission to like re-envision what to do because what you're doing doesn't work. Hmm. So you don't have to like protect it. It's, right, it's, right. It doesn't work at all. Yep. And so for us, we then got to do this automation, this full provisioning pipeline that was self-service and actually like we're able to completely remove ourselves from it where people could do it instantly um, with no involvement for us. This then downstream creates lots of other problems that uh, too many services, et cetera. But we, we fix the bottleneck, which is like sometimes <laughs> one bottleneck at a time, you try to like fix the overall system or evolve the overall system. Systems like aren't fixable, I suppose. They just evolve. So so that one was, I think, how do you make sure you don't waste work doing things that, that will never get delivered? Got and it. I think- yep. That one really, really resonates with where I've seen teams and companies just spend huge amounts of time to kind of no impact. Yep. This isn't just technical, right? If you're designing like a new process, for example, um, like if you're trying to roll out a like uh, a new career le- level, right? Or if you're introducing the idea of like what even is a career level, that also means that there are people who are not at the career level, and how do you handle those folks who have not been at the career level for a long time? Are you going to manage those folks out now? And so I think um, using the same thing, what are the hardest edge cases? Yes. And using that for process design works works just as well. Yes. Yeah. No, I found that to be excellent. Yeah. And then I thought it was like an interesting sort of, and, and they're not direct, right? They're, they're, like, they're, they're not even like sort of placed anywhere close in the book, right? But this idea of also those stop doing it harder, right? I think the, the idea of stop doing it harder is more about, I think people try to work through, I, there's just like the, the a industry conversation about burnout that, that's mm. been happening for years. And I think there there's this idea that you can like work through problems. I, I think certain problems you can work through, for example, um, 
if you have an urgent like launch date you need to hit and it's like two weeks out, you can work harder and be more likely to hit that date, right? Um, but if you are then every two weeks working harder to hit the next two weeks, you're, you're sort of working in a, in a broken system. And I developed this idea at that time of sometimes the only way um, to fix the system and actually make huge improvements is to let the system fail. Yes, I completely agree. And I think as a like motivated, smart, hardworking person, you can put yourself in spots where you try to sustain the broken system, but it, but it doesn't work. Yep, exactly. And I think the the hard part is distinguishing sort of between the two, right? When do you let it fail? When do you sort of press on and understand that, you know, doing the hard thing first is actually what's going to save more time in the long run? And this idea actually of, I think what both concepts actually encapsulate is something else you talk about in the book, which is this idea of focusing on long-term success rather than sort of the feel goods in the short term and the short term quality. So, and, and I, they are consistent ideas. I just found them interesting because I think on the surface, someone might read it and be like, oh, this is like, do they play well? Do they not? Uh, so it's really, really interesting. Another thing you talked about, Will, that I actually, unfortunately, just don't come across in a lot of leadership literature is you got really tactical about time management. There's even like a lovely little sheet for, for Foxy Pick of the Book where you sort of give a sample block out schedule of a potential engineering manager schedule for like one-on-ones and, you know, planning that team offsite that you're not really excited to play in. And, uh, but, but what advice do you have for, cause I, you know, I get this question a lot from a lot of different leaders. Um, around how you think about managing time, why it's so important, what it's, what's worked for you, how has that evolved for you over time as well? Uh, so the reason time management is so important is, like you mentioned this earlier slightly, but like a lot of leadership is showing up. Hmm. And so I think um, when you think about like inclusion and diversity, for example, yes, I think there's like having talking points um, and there are saying the right things and there are kind of reactively modeling like the right behaviors. Oh, there's like a, a situation and you uphold kind of the, the standards you want. And then there's this next bucket of like spending two hours a week doing proactive outreach, yep. um, actually investing the time proactively to try to like accomplish these. It's spending time to actually attend like the, the employee resource groups um, versus like being a sponsor who can't kind of carve out the time. So I think time management is so important because ultimately, as a leader, like your values are like where you where you put your time. Yep. And they're not really what you believe, um, because there's lots of things that people believe and support that they yes. don't put time in. But like your your values are like where you show up and put your time. And so absolutely, that's hard because you like don't have that much of it. And I think you get increasingly <laughs> yeah. like busy. Where I think you often have this kind of trade off: Do I come hmm. back in my one on ones, yep. and then I'm setting the value that I do not care about my team as much as I, I want to? Or do I go to this ERG group where if I don't go, I'm setting this value that I don't value um, this community? Neither of these are really acceptable trade-offs, right? Like, But you you have to do it. Um, and so it's hard, but this is why it matters so much. Right. Um, what, what, um, what actually works? Uh, so I think I've evolved this a lot. Something I do every quarter is I just audit my calendar to understand where I've spent my time. And I'm pretty ruthless about cutting back to get to where I want to be. Yep. I think that means like being less accessible than you want to um, sometimes to certain categories of like outreaches. 
um, d- doing this book, I-, I found that I like overcommitted to kind of just <laughs> a imagine. number of things. <laughs> and I want to do them, but you just have to be like, what What have I starved out sure. by, by doing it, right? So blocking, reviewing every quarter, starting over, having meetings that expire automatically, where after 16, they just go away and you have to remember to reschedule it. You know, having the courage to cancel stuff, having the courage to just stop showing up to something you don't think is useful. Earlier in your career, I think you often believe that like critical information and things happen in, like behind these closed doors. But like when you're behind more and more of the closed doors, I think the, the the illusion that this is where like the important things happen like kind of wears <laughs> off. There's less right? work FOMO, meeting FOMO over time. Yeah, I think um, attendance as a form of recognition gets like increasingly low low um, yes. r- return <laughs> over time. Yes. Well, what I really appreciate about what you shared there is this idea that how you spend your time communicates your values. And in many ways, I think, I mean, I think about myself, like I, I have to check myself on that a lot. It's like literally how I'm spending each hour of my day is saying what I think is most important and where I think our priorities as a company should be. And that level of intentionality, I don't think is put oftentimes for us as leaders on, on where we're, we're putting our, t- our time. So I just love this idea of literally, you know, how you are spending it, whether it's, you know, doing outbound outreach for diversity and inclusion efforts, whether that's around interviewing, whether that's preparing for those one-on-ones, like whatever the, those blocks of times you're going to, you're essentially communicating to your team, like this is what matters to me. And then I appreciate also just the, the quarterly reflection on that as well, because it's a way to sort of keep yourself accountable on that. Uh, it's not the case like how I spent my last quarter is like an obviously optimal thing that I should like continue to reinvest in, right? So I think just forcing like reflections when you learn, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, so Will, I literally, like I said, I have hundreds of questions, but I don't want to keep you here (laughs) all day on this podcast talking to me. So for, you know, for the sake of time, one of the things that I was like, I have to ask him about this when he comes on the podcast is I think the introduction to your book or, you know, sort of the preface, you talked about how a lot of people get into management for different reasons. So sometimes they think they could do a better job than their leader. Sometimes uh, they're sort of excited for their career path. Sometimes, you know, they're just curious. And you said in the book that you wouldn't say, you know, you didn't say which one you were. So I am curious to understand, like, what drove you to become a leader? And then also in writing the book, uh, just, you know, someone who, you know, I do a ton of writing myself, like people write books because they feel like they have something to say. Like for you, like what was the driving force behind wanting to get this book out there as well? So the first one, really at that point, Dig, like the other managers had left hmm. and they were looking for kind of the person who didn't realize that it was like not the best management job to start managing <laughs> at this failing startup <laughs> after the second round of layoffs. And I was um, I was like the the easy the, the easy con and I, I like signed up for it um, and I was super excited and so <laughs> it was it wasn't super intentional but the opportunity was there yeah and, and I've actually told this to a lot of people and this advice has never gone over well it, it turns out this is not good advice to deliver but if you find yourself at a bad company um, there's actually a lot of opportunity for you personally because there's like a lot happening and there's a lot of room for you. Right. But it turns out telling people they're at a bad company doesn't doesn't actually land very well. So <laughs> I, I stopped trying to deliver this advice to sure. people. Noted. But I was I was at a bad company, so and I felt comfortable saying that at that point. Um, in terms of writing the book, I think something that I have come to believe is that 
I think the piece that kind of comes to this the best is there's this piece about um, working the policy, not the exceptions. And I found very few folks who are willing to tolerate the consequences of not making frequent exceptions. Um, so exceptions are, for example, like compensation, like you really want to hire the candidate, you're just going to give them a little bit more than you've given to people in comparable roles. You, you really don't want to lose the star performer. So you're going to make a new role just for them. That is um, a role a lot of people want, but you're going to carve it out for them. I think it, it's so easy to do that, but it, it basically means that you start penalizing the the folks who I think are the, uh, I think the core of great organizations who are quietly doing amazing, humble work. Yep. Um, they're creating space for other people to be successful. Right. Um, they're not. They're not grabbing all the opportunity for for th- themselves. They're like actually optimizing for the the community, for the company, or the org. Hmm. I, I just feel very strongly, um, because I, rightly or wrongly, like in part view myself as that person. How do we make sure these systems work for people who are not actively trying to game the system? How do we make these systems work for people who are doing exactly what the system wants? How do we reward the, the people who are kind enough to actually operate the way we've asked them. And I think this book shows my set of processes that I found actually work for making sure that you can reward those for sorts of people. And, and I found that along the way, these have lots of powerful benefits around creating opportunity that's equally distributed to make it easy for folks who have not historically had easy access or who felt it was risky to kind of get access to some of these like staff level projects or senior roles get access to them in a way where they don't feel put at risk yes. or, or put out. And so I found that it's actually possible to manage this way. There's lots of uncomfortable parts about being very structured and process driven and consistent. But I found that it's much easier to have the awkward up front versus this long trail of kind of rumor and innuendo about how things, you know, actually work. And so I just really think if more companies and more leaders were willing to operate this way, like there's like a much more scalable model for them to take on. The orgs are much easier to be successful in. And I actually think they just work quite well. So that that's sort of the the dream that I have in in putting this book out there. Absolutely. No, I love that. I, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's the driving sort of undercurrent throughout, you know, each of the pieces that you, you have in it. And, and it, what it also honestly circles back to is your observation that it's that modeling and it's that consistency, right? That is sort of the role of the individual of the leader, but it's the processes and the systems overall that sort of make that transferable, that creates that to be sustainable over time and, and gets you the results that you want in, in the long term. I, I mean, your example of, oh, you know, if we just gave this person, you know, like a little more, or, oh, like, why don't just this one time, right? It's like, gosh, you, you know, you can't imagine how much that kills morale, what that says to the other team members who, like you said, have been quietly toiling. And when you, as leaders, you, you know, we're more deliberate about thinking about what effects that we have. Like, again, like our intentions, I think at the time we're thinking, oh, we just, you know, just very short term, like, oh, we just need this person. We, we just need this role. Just got to get this done. And, and it's, we're so easily blinded by that, I guess. Okay. So actually very last question here for, for truth. I, I can only imagine that there are some folks who are listening to this, you know, well, who, you know, they run companies or run teams much smaller than yours. Right. And they're thinking, okay, in theory, this sounds nice, right? 
Like this sounds great for a company with over a thousand people, and you know you're running an org with a couple hundred people. But what about you know my my 50 person company, and I'm running a 10 person? T- like, is it like is really optimizing so much for system and process? And like, are you really telling me I can't make so many exceptions because I'm going to be viewed as inconsistent? What what do you have to say to those leaders? Great process uh, done well is you you add as little as necessary, and then you you don't throw it away. You like layer more pieces on. And so I think this is a place where like looking at like what the your predecessor companies have done and taking as little as you can and kind of slowly layering these processes I think works pretty well. I think ultimately going back to exactly where we started, there's something about figuring out like what your values are as yeah. a company and what your values as a leader and then being honest about them where people can kind of select in to the company. And saying that there's like a level of privilege in terms of being able to be in a spot where you're hiring selectively enough that you can be like, well, we want people who actually have the same beliefs about what makes a good company as we do. Sure. Um, my first hiring management experiences were at Dig, where we had just gone through layoffs, people were leaving, but we still need to hire and we we're like running out of money. And so it was like very difficult. Like we were not um, we were not like. Uh, this person's not as value aligned, like they shouldn't come in or something. We were like, yes, we will definitely talk to you. <laughs> sure. um, we were different kind of mode there. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I honestly, I honestly do think it's easier to be consistent. I actually think it's just an easier way to manage and it's an easier way to lead and that it, it has dividends. I, I personally, you know, really believe everyone should try to, to model this way. I think that said, I, I really think you have to figure out who you and your company's values are. Yes. And be honest to them. I think the worst thing is like representing that you have a consistent, structured way, but then actually don't don't operate that way. So I think it's more important to be authentic to like your, your actual values than it is to like manage the way I want you to manage. Yeah. And I also think, you know, consistency can even be to a level of revisiting processes or in, you know, sort of stepping away from process. Like, I think the thing that I, that I think is actually widely applicable, you know, regardless of organizational size or even company stage is that anytime you think about something or manage in a more systemic way, you're thinking about, well, what does this look like, you know, if it's existing beyond me? And what is this looking like to get to where we want to be? And that's what every team is looking to do, ultimately. And so your sort of method for it is, is to, well, how do we have that be sort of a repeatable outcome, right? And that's, that's the beauty of, of having some level of process and system in it. So wonderful. This, um, as an ending thought, this ties into like an, another belief of mine, which is that the typically as you get further in your career, it's not that you have like things that you're good at and things that you're bad at or strengths and weaknesses. It's more that you have like characteristics hmm. that surface in like really positive and negative ways. <laughs> and so we talked a little bit about kind of rigidity as a leader and like my leadership style and trying to get less rigid, but also like all of this process, all of this approach, this consistency also comes from that rigidity. And so they're, they're like, you know, manifest in different ways. Yes. I, yeah, I, I, I we had, um, there was another guest we had on the show who, um, I don't know if you know, Cap Watkins he used to be the VP of design over at, at BuzzFeed. And uh, he, uh, he talked about how it was like, like he said, it was really characteristics and two sides of a coin of it being sort of his greatest sort of superpower. And then like the biggest pain in the ass for him too, you know, and sort of the thing that he always struggled with, with the most. Uh, and so I, I, yeah, I, I love that, that framing of, of our characteristics versus sort of strengths and weaknesses outright. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Will, for your time, for all your insights. I highly recommend everyone to grab a copy of this lovely book. And yeah, I appreciate you so much coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.